navy blue Victoria. As he uses his feet and goes again through mid-wicket. That's an even better shot from the Victorian captain. Swept away very nicely by Nicole Bottom for four. Oh, he's re-given! That is 50. The man from Northcote. Well, welcome to the Vic State Cricket Podcast. I'm Adam White, and unfortunately, this is the last of the series. So we thought, considering it was the last, a little bit like a, a rock band, they've got to leave one of their best songs for last. And we've done that with uh, a special guest today, Darren Berry, one of Victoria's finest cricketers, one of the most decorated cricketers of the last 30 or 40 years. Darren, thanks for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Whitey. Looking forward to it. This is going to be hard to keep to less than two hours. <laughs> We're going to try our best. Um, I'm going to ask you straight up, why are we keeping? I think just as a young bloke watching television, I loved Rod Marsh when I was watching cricket, you know, back in that day, Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson bowling fast and Rod Marsh diving across the screen was probably the bloke that caught my eye. So he was my childhood idol all over my wall, you know, Rod Marsh posters. That's where I think the passion was born. And were you good at it from a young age? Because often in junior cricket, you all have a go at where you're keeping. Or maybe just one person does and it's like, that's my spot. How did it sort of eventuate once you started to play club cricket? And it's normally the bloke that's no good at anything else. They put the <laughs> gloves on him. Uh, well, I actually started at Buckley Ridges Cricket Club in the Dandenong District Cricket Association um, a long time ago in the under-12s and they had a wicketkeeper. So I bowled leg spin and batted at about number nine and I thought, oh, not much happening here. So when my family, or my mother, mother and father, dad retired and we moved to country Victoria. So we lived in Dandenong initially, or classy part of Dandenong, Dufton. <laughs> and uh, dad retired from the building game, we moved to Wonthaggy. And when I moved to Wonthaggy in grade six, I said to them, I'm a wicketkeeper. So I've got the gloves out. So that's where it really started, grade six. Uh, but to be honest, a little story to start, when I lived in Dufton, at the end of the street, which doesn't happen very often now, Waddy, there was a vacant block. And after school, no exaggeration, every night, 12 to 15 kids, we'd meet in this vacant block. We called it the paddock in Dufton with a lot of older boys than me. So I was only about 10 or 11 and we mowed the pitch like we did as kids yep. and you'd mark the lines out. Um, and they used to use the fence as the automatic wicketkeeper. You nick it between here and the third, you know, playing yep. you're out. Yep. And I said, no, bugger that. Uh, I used to get in with the old taped up tennis balls and keep with my bare hands up to the stumps. So I think, think back, that's probably where my love of Rod Marsh, playing cricket in the paddock in Dufton with a group of mates who were a lot older than me, that's where I think my real desire to wicket keep started and moved to Wonthaggy and, and it took off. Was there was it a cricketing family? Was it was there passion there? Was there someone to look up to, a dad or an uncle or an older brother that got you into into the game and of saying, right, this is what you're going to do every summer? Ironically, no. Mum and dad, elderly parents, I was born, mum and dad had four kids in seven years, 17 years later me. Right. I think I was a mistake, Whitey, to be honest, <laughs> and some would say a bad mistake. Uh, so, no, growing up, dad was a footballer. Um, dad was a Tasmanian amateur boxing champion and he was a rower, my father, World War II veteran, so an elderly uh, father and f much older brothers and sisters. Not one of them played cricket. Right. My father never played cricket. He was AFL football um, so it's strange that no one in my family had that passion. I think my mates in Dufton were all passionate about it and that's where my love of the game came. So you're talking about going to one thaggy and often uh, playing country cricket, you get opportunities as a youngster that perhaps you wouldn't get in, in Melbourne um, because there is there are less people around. Was that a bit like that for you? How did you start to 
just sort of make your way as a young cricketer? 100%. So when I went down there, I was playing juniors in the morning, like most you know youngsters that love the game, and then I'd play or fill in B grade in the afternoon, fine leg to fine leg at 12 years of age, but looked up to all those guys. And then I put the gloves on one day and they gave me a shot behind the stumps in the B grade, uh, one Thaggy Rovers B grade it was. And I, I don't remember why, but I used to stand up to the stumps, probably from those days in Dufton, um, up to the stumps to the fast bowlers. And they were like, wow, this kid's all right, you know. And soon enough, I was playing A-grade in the country. When I, when I was 13 or 14, I was playing A-grade cricket against men. And that was a great growing up experience because – and they were really good to me as well. You know, back in the day, they'd go to the pub afterwards. They'd take me along and I'd, I'd have a lemon lime and bitters or a lemon squash. But I learned a lot. Uh, Juan Thaggy, Lee and Gather, Currumburra in South Gippsland. And, and then I moved to – a club called Outram Moyera Kongwak. A lot right. easier to call OMK. Yeah. Uh, and I had some really good role models there. Steve McNamara was a bloke that was a big influence. He was a great bat. And uh, I opened the batting with him when I was 14 years of age in A grade. Um, a great country upbringing and sport was huge. AFL football was, was probably my number one love. Uh, and cricket. And, you know, that was sort of 14, 15, 16 years of age. And then the opportunity came to to come to Melbourne for what I thought at the time was big time premier cr- grade cricket. Yeah. So before we get to that sort of sort of move, just it's been a bit of a theme through this podcast series about young guys, 14, 15, playing against men and how much you grew up, not just as a cricketer but as a person having these older people around you. Yeah? How much do you think when you look back that sort of formed the Darren Berry, the cricketer, now when you look back? Huge, enormous, and I, I think it's sad in the current day that there's a lot of uh, underage cricket and people sort of play in their development squads, but not a lot these days play against men, and I was a big advocate for it because I know it was it was what made me. Mm. Right through, I always played with men. When I was, from 12 years of age, I was playing senior cricket. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I know we'll get to when I came down to Melbourne, but again, I was still only a baby and went straight into Fitzroy Doncaster with hard and men, you know, great role models. So I look back fondly with the people that influenced me as a young kid and, and I would say to any youngsters in the country in particular, mm. if you can play senior cricket, you learn so much more. Yeah. So you're playing senior cricket, A-grade cricket as a teenager. Was there a moment where you or someone came to you and said, Darren, you're a bit better than all right here. There's something There's something pretty special ahead. There was an old gentleman down there who'd kept wickets at Carlton Cricket Club. His name was Bert Matcott. So the people in Montaggy, if they watch this, will remember. <laughs> yeah. And he was he was an elderly gentleman and, and he'd kept wickets at Carlton. I think in the first and seconds, he was the first one, I reckon, in the country that sort of identified and said, you know, this kid's got something. Um, but then, to be perfectly honest... Um, it was a guy by the name of George Murray who was a highly respected figure in Melbourne, had been a coach and a player at Footscray and Melbourne University. He was a teacher at, um, uh, what's that school in town where all the footballers played? Not Melbourne High, University High School, where yep. a lot of the Carlton footballers and, and a lot of cricketers went through there. George Murray worked there as a principal and he was the talent manager at Fitzroy Doncaster. He spotted me in a Victorian country trial game and I say that he was the one that said, we've got to get this boy to Melbourne. So how did it happen? It actually happened through tragedy. The wicketkeeper at the time for Fitzroy Doncaster, and it was Fitzroy at Brunswick Street, but they were merging with Doncaster. And Doug Rumble was a much respected first 11 wicketkeeper at Fitzroy. 
And uh, long story short, so I know we don't have four hours here, he was tragically uh, killed in a skiing accident. He was a PE teacher. He'd taken me away with the Victorian under-16 team. He was the coach and because I was the keeper and he was a keeper, we developed a bond straight away. And I, I don't think I know that he had a word to Fitzroy to say, there's this kid from the bush that we should look at. And I was hoping that to maybe the next year come down and play in the seconds behind him and that would have been a huge leap. I was hoping for that. When the tragedy took place and Dougie Rumble lost his life, um, Fitzroy Doncaster through George Murray, uh, they took a punt and they brought this kid from the country who was playing on the Melthoid or the Mats one week straight into the first, which not many people get to do. It's... I look back now, at the time I didn't think much of it, but wow, you know, no apprenticeship, country one week, straight into the Fitzroy Doncaster first, and I'm one of the very lucky ones that, that I actually never played in the lower grade. So through tragedy came opportunity, and George Murray, the late George Murray, was the identifier of my gloves, I think. So how old were you? 16 when I was identified. I played my first game in January. Gee, I'm thinking back now, I was 17 years of age, so it must have been 1987, 17 years of age. I was still in uh, high school in Monthaggy. So how, from a train, you know, getting up for training or playing on Saturday, how did that, that all happen? Mum and Dad. As yeah. I said, I had elderly parents. They'd retired. Dad liked his sport but didn't have a clue about cricket. My mum and dad, like most country mum and dads, I remember I listened to when you had Matty Innes and how many hours his mum spent and mm. dad driving. Well, my mum and dad used to drive me from Wonthaggy to Doncaster uh, twice a week and then I was in the Keith Stackpole squad so we'd train at Punt Road or the MCG and I was also chasing my footy dream, which was probably a bigger dream then um, at St Kilda in the under-19. So we were back and forwards at least twice, most times three times a week, and my mum and dad did hours and hours of driving and I'm forever thankful because not many country parents would have made that commitment they did to me. So 17, you're playing for Fitzroy Doncaster in the first 11. How quickly did you feel you belonged at that level? How quickly did you feel my skills are actually stacking up here pretty well? I remember being so nervous. I think my first game was actually Simon O'Donnell's return match from cancer. Right. And there was cameras at, at Don Schramm's Reserve, yep. Doncaster, and there was television cameras. And I'm thinking, you know, oh, geez, I'm going all right here. The cameras are here <laughs> from a first... It was for Simon O'Donnell's return game after he'd battled cancer. Um, so the nerves were strong. And I, I think I, I do... I've got a pretty good memory of it. Um, we played Northcote. I'm not sure what game it was. And Ian Callan, who was a great bowler, was playing for Northcote. And, um, Mick O'Sullivan, Julian Wiener... And, and I stumped Vid Richardson down the leg side. I still remember it off Lee Watts. And uh, Lee will be listening to this. So, I mean, I always stood up to Lee because he was very slow, <laughs> medium pace bowler. And I got a leg side stumping. And I think that even though it was only one dismissal, people started to talk to say, this kid's okay. Uh, and for me, that was probably, okay, I belong. And I think because I'd played a lot widely with senior men that I – at that stage, I wouldn't say I was overly confident, but I was confident enough to say, I, I can handle myself here, mm. especially with the gloves. I was a bit nervous with the bat when I had to go in and face, you know, Hogg and Callan and these guys at 17 years of age. That was a bit over overwhelming. But wicket-keeping-wise, I felt comfortable from a pretty young age. And I think that's it's an interesting point you make, I think, as you go through playing with men around you. Feeling comfortable is half the battle. And, and it's all relative whether you're going from Victoria to Australia, from club cricket to Victoria. Yep. 
often it's the mental leap as much as the physical leap as to whether you can actually perform as you go through the grades. I was pretty lucky as well. When I arrived at Fitzroy, Doncaster, um, and I, I can still see it vividly in my mind, I'm behind the stumps. The late, great John Scholes, who was without doubt the biggest influence on my career, he was at bat pad with his plastic hip and uh, he'd be having a word. Next to me at first lit with Gary Watts, he'd be having a word. At Silly Mid-Off was Lee Watts, the youngest brother. He was having a word. People often said that I had too many words. Well, I had three pretty good role models. when, I, As a kid from the country at 17, it was either stand up and be part of this or fall away. So it was known as the Bermuda Triangle <laughs> against Fitzroy Doncaster. And uh, the Watts brothers and Johnny Scholes gave me a great apprenticeship early on. And it was, hey, we think you're good enough. Stand up and be a man. Fantastic. And we're talking about some of the greats of, uh, of Victorian cricket. So from there, I'm interested in how you got to the academy in South Australia because a lot of the the good players, um, or one of the, some of the great players, in fact, a lot of the great players all went through the academy in South Australia. How did you get there? Uh, yep. The, I'd played in the Victorian underage 16s and 19s and then I was chosen in the Australian Youth World Cup team a long time ago now and uh, it was a great team. And we played in Mildura and all through that region in the Australian under-19s. World Cup, Jeff Parker was the captain of the side. Uh, we, won the, we won the World Cup. We beat Pakistan on the Adelaide Oval and some big names were playing in that tournament for all the world team. It was a great... Where's some of the names? All, all the teams came from all over the world. So mm. England had Michael Atherton, Nasser Hussain, Warren Hegg. Um, there's probably more that I can think of when I really think about it. Victoria in our side. Jeff Parker was the captain and he was a schoolboy superstar, both football and cricket. Um, Adrian Tucker, Stuart Law... Joe Scuderi, Wayne Holdsworth, Brett Williams was a gun player at the time. So the Australian team won the grand final. Um, I think Inzi played, Inzaman played for <laughs> Pakistan, uh, Bassett Ali, Brian Lara was captain of the West Indies. So a lot of players yeah. in that Youth World Cup became legends of world cricket. From the uh, that team, they picked the first academy squad based in Adelaide, very different than what it is so now. So you were part of the first one? Very, the initial right, okay. intake, and yeah. I was probably a, a little bit out of my age group. So the Victorians in that group were Jeff Parker, two years older than me, Ian Fraser, yeah. left-handed batsman who was two or three years older than me, Brian McFadgen, Freddie McFadgen, who was, he started shaving at 12, yeah. Brian McFadgen, big fast bowler from Geelong and now works in Australian cricket. I hope I haven't forgotten any. I think it was Parker, Fraser, McFadgen, and then I was two years younger. So, again, I was always playing up the grades. I should have been in the under-17 Victorian side and I played in the under-19s. And from that, went to Adelaide for a year in the academy and it was a great experience. We stayed there all year. And a lot of people don't remember this. We played for an Adelaide grade team instead of coming home. And South Australia had the option, pretty lucky, they could pick from the academy as well. And quite a few boys, Michael Bevan, Phil Alley, they played for South Australia when they were at the academy. So what was that experience like being part of an academy? As you said, first intake, it was a brand new thing. I mm. mean, I would imagine as someone that loved their cricket, it was pretty exciting. So oh, it's like that was Disneyland. It was 100%. It was heaven. I've arrived in Adelaide. We're staying at St Mark's College, which is across the road from the Adelaide Oval. Not sure that was conducive to high performance because we were in the halls of residence of Adelaide University. I'll let... The listeners and the viewers, just you can think about what was going on there. 18 of the best cricketers across the country built, um, staying in the halls of residence across the road from the Adelaide Oval. But we trained every morning and it was hard. Jack Potter was the head coach, former Victorian great. 
uh, Peter Spence, the assistant coach, um, and you know Shane George from South Australia, James Pike, Stuart Law was there. Uh, it was a great year. I look back with fond memories. We had a reunion recently, and it was so good to get back. Some of the guys went on and, and played for Australia, Jamie Cox, and some you know did just petered out. But looking back on that year, it was a great grounding for me to start off a first class career from there. So, how much did you improve by being part of a? a high-performance environment because high-performance then wasn't really a, a, a thing. It was this, was this was a brand new thing that the Australian cricket was trying to set up. No doubt about that. And, it, and it, it was the start, I think, of the changing of the guard and the professionalism, training standards, you know, and, and you know, quite a still was probably six or seven years later before contracts started to come in. But we started to train properly, whereas cricket before that was, you know, growing up for me in the country, it was pretty relaxed. But... It was a high-performance environment and we had, you know, a lot of people around us that were trying to be the best they could be. So I think that initial setup of the Cricket Academy was a great idea. It's changed in its concept a bit now. You sort of go for little periods, six mm. or eight weeks. We went for 12 months and we lived in each other's pockets. Um, Scotty Prestwich from New South Wales. Some gr- And you know what? Some of those guys that I played with are still today my best friends in cricket because we lived together for 12 months. Mm. It, was, it was a great experience, a great year. So a lot of people don't realise you played a year of Sheffield Shield cricket for South Australia. Is that how it happened because you were there and you were taken from the academy to play for South Australia? Uh, yes and no. Uh, so I was there the very first year, I should remember, because I did year 12 in 87. So it was 88, 89. I never played that year when I was there. Peter Anderson, who, in yeah. my opinion, the best wicketkeeper Australia's ever not had for the test matches, Queenslander had gone to Adelaide. He was keeping. And I was there just playing club cricket for Tea Tree Gully. Anderson went home at the end of my academy year and David Hooks, the late David Hooks, who went on to become my Victorian coach, he was captain of South Australia. And he said to me, son, if you stick around, he said, no guarantee but you're a pretty big chance to wear the gloves for South Australia. That was a big decision, Whitey, because I was very Victorian and I wanted to play for Victoria. But Michael Dimitina, who was a very good wicketkeeper here uh, and was touted as a potential Australian player, he was firmly entrenched in the Vic team. And as a keeper, you've got to be in the right place at the right time. So tough decision, uh, but I stayed on in Adelaide for one year and and I played one year for South Australia, uh, which was 89-90 before coming home to Victoria in 1990. So the obvious question, what was that like? I'm interested in also David Hook says, come, you might you might get a game, yep. getting that first game and and being part of some of, some of the biggest names in South Australian cricket, some of the biggest names in Australian cricket were playing in that team. They were. And again, it was, it happened, it just seemed to, it just kept happening for me from, you know, we've already touched on the early days, but... You know, in that South Australian side, David Hooks was the captain, Andrew Hilditch, Peter Sleep, Tim May, uh, Glenn Bishop, a young guy by the name of Darren Lehman, not a bad player. So Buff and I formed a good friendship because we started together for South Australia. Um, it had some really, really good players in that side and I was lucky enough as a young keeper, I'm keeping the Tim May and Peter well, Sleep. That's what I thought. How good's that? So I had, you know, the great. he was a fantastic off-spinner, Tim May, and Peter Sleep, bowling leggies. Uh, Colin uh, Colin Miller, had he come across? Yeah, Colin Miller had moved across from Victoria. Um, Peter Gladigow, I remember, bowling attack. So it was a good first year and I really enjoyed it. I was playing shield cricket, you know, 19, I think I was. So I'd just finished school, 19, I'm playing state cricket. But if I'm being really honest, 
the big V was still burning and I thought, how can this happen? At the end of the year, sadly, my father passed away. He'd, he'd suffered um, a little bit with cancer and Dad died. So I wanted two reasons. I wanted to come home and help my mother because she was elderly and she had uh, horrible osteoarthritis. She was almost wheelchair-bound. So I was obliged in my mind to come and look after my mother. But equally, I thought, well, I might not get in the Victorian side because Dimmer's in, but I'll fight for the spot. And that's exactly what I did. I came home and did pre-season and I, there was no guarantees as it turned out, I got the nod and, and that started a 15-year career for Victoria. So how brutal was that? Because as you said, Michael Dimitina was a wonderful gloveman, yep. um, very similar to you, very good up to the stumps as well as back. And um, there was a, a time there where everyone thought he was the next in line to play mm. for Australia. Um, was it brutal or was it – because how competitive can it get? Because Adam Crosswaite came in talked about the competitiveness between him and Matthew Wade. There's yep. only one spot. Um, what was that like, particularly that pre-season when you've uh, fronted up and said, well, game on? Good observation, Whitey. And the, the, the probably the most – Dimmer was great. There was no animosity between the two of us at the time, but the difficult part was he was very close with Simon O'Donnell, uh, Merv Hughes, Tony Dottermade, the legends of Victorian cricket, and he was their keeper, their buddy. So I really felt like an outsider. It was tough. Uh, and then when the decision was made, to be honest, I, at the time, I think there was a few people with their nose out of place that, hang on, how come this kid's taken over from Dimmer? I was probably lucky. Victoria had had a bad season the year before and Dimmer hadn't had a great season himself. But I knew he was a great player. I admired him. Um, ironically, I played Dowling Shield. I should go back at Ringwood, from Monthaggy to Ringwood. Dimitina was the Ringwood wicketkeeper. Right. right. And I was in the Dowling Shield. Uh, and Ringwood had to clear me to go, we're going back over old ground, to go to Fitzroy Doncaster, and I remember George Murray said, well, this young kid needs to be competing with Dimitina, not at the same club. At that stage, I was my, I thought in my mind, I'm miles off Michael yeah. Dimitina. Anyway, look, I took his spot. It was tough, and I look back now and I feel for Dimmer because his career was, you know, he'd played for seven years, I reckon, and gone, and... As a keeper, some you know, I then played for 15 years for Victoria, a little hiccup in the middle where I lost my spot to Peter Roach uh, when I got injured and I never got my spot back. But it, sometimes as a keeper, if you get in and do well, it's harder to get out than it is to get in. Yeah, so that, I'm fascinated with this dynamic of coming in and as a young man having played for South Australia the year before, getting that acceptance from your new teammates when you've got a popular figure behind the stumps for, as yep. you said, seven or eight years. How... How hard is that to earn your stripes? And how do you earn your stripes? Again, great question, Whitey. And I'll tell this story. Simon O'Donnell might not like it. We laughed about it now. And, you know, I get along really well. I coached his sons at Xavier College. It makes me feel really old. But Simon was a hard-nosed captain and a, very, a great player, fantastic cricketer. But he was good mates with Dimmer. And when I first came in, I wouldn't say he made it that easy for me. He made, you know, used to bounce me in the nets. And it was, again, stand up if you're good enough type of thing. But I distinctly remember he used to read the batting order out. Now, I didn't like this. And he'd read the names out and he'd get to number seven, which was the wicketkeeper's spot, and he'd say, oh, Chuck, uh, no, Dotter made seven, Chuck at eight. No, 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 Pistol at eight, Chuck at nine. No, Merv nine, Chuck ten. And he did that a couple of times in meetings. And I, I didn't like it. I was upset by it. I didn't say anything. And Merv Hughes, one of my great mates in cricket, about the third time he said, hey, Scoob, Enough of the bullshit, mate. Cut it out, you know. And 
that made me feel part of the team because Merv was also good mates with Dimmer, but Merv was my favourite teammate, the most passionate Victorian, and and he knew this young kid goes okay, let's welcome him rather than make him feel uncomfortable. And from then on, Simon and I were fine as well, but it was just like, I think it was just him saying, hey, you've got to earn your stripes, mate. You're not doing enough with the bat. But that was a bit of a tough welcome, if you like. It was tough cricket playing for Victoria that time. It was. Brutal cricket, I'd almost suggest. Not just playing against opposition, but also amongst your teammates at times. And it it created a competitive edge and was largely one of the reasons why I think you were successful through that period. But can you can you explain what it was like in the change rooms? Yep. And I think you become a product of your environment. As I said, Fitzroy Doncaster, I had tough blokes, John Scholes and the Watts brothers. Got on the Victorian side, O'Donnell, Hughes, Dottermaid, Siddons, Rifle, Fleming, Ayres, you know, uh, the names can go on. Training was training was tougher than playing the game. You know, you'd, and at the time, we never had the home base, this magnificent city power centre. I walk in now envious and in awe and well done. But at the time, we never had a home base. We were ba- MCG, but we trained, and Graffy and I always headbutted over this. In my time, I reckon I trained at about 26 different venues, all the private schools, where Carlton became our home for a bit, Punt Road, the Junction Oval, which is now the magnificent City Power Centre. So we would train here, there and everywhere. It was tough, but whenever we got to training, it was tougher because competitive for spots uh, and I think, again, that made me the person that I become and then probably I'd say that I've heard a couple of other people speak to you in these uh, podcasts that that I was probably hard on people as well because I was a product of what I knew. Yeah. And playing for Victoria was an honour and a privilege and you had to earn that right and it was dog eat dog, stand up and be counted. And And I'm very thankful that I played in that era. I think now it's... Some would say a better environment, you know, more inclusive for sure. It was a tough era. Damien Fleming and I were kids and, you know, we'd sit in the rooms and Fleming would be 12th man and they'd make him get the, the beers after the game and hand them around to the boys, get me a beer out the esky, you know. I mean, today, everyone just grabs their own, but the old blokes would sit with their feet on the esky and say, Fleming, I need a beer, and they'd have their feet on the esky. That was how it was back then. It was a tough old school. See, when you look back on it now, do you cringe or do you just say, no, that was what it was like and and that's kind of what made me the, the, the hard-nosed cricketer that you became? A bit of both, a bit of both. I'm glad I played in that tough era, but I think it, it could have and should have been a better environment. And to be perfectly honest, and I say this, that we had great teams, but we didn't have great success in my early days. My very first year we won the Shield and Flemo and I were 19-year-old kids and I, I loved it. But then there was probably a period, a barren period, where we didn't win mm. with guys that Dean Jones, Paul Rifle, Dottermaid, O'Donnell, uh, Hughes, Warren, the great man arrives on the scene. You know, the names we had, we should have won more. They were away a lot for Australia. But I don't think we were as, as close or the team harmony wasn't as good as what it could have been. At the time, I knew no different. Mm. And I look back now on great mates with those blokes, but... It was, it was probably too hard, to be honest. Um, and if I look back on my time as captain later in my career, you know, I made it hard for people when they come in, but I also would like to feel that I put my arm around blokes and embrace them as well when young guys come into the side. But that's how it was. And I don't 
have any regrets about that. But looking back, it was an interesting time. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked about Simon O'Donnell. So Simon O'Donnell and Dean Jones were the two biggest names pretty much in Victorian cricket when you emerged as the Victorian keeper. And Merv, keeper. And Merv of course, yep. and Merv. So what was that like with having three guys such, not just great cricketers, but such massive personalities in Australian sport, let alone Victorian sport, um, not just big names but big personalities? It was great. It was really great. But And we got a lot of exposure back then, way more than state cricket does now. It was back page news, Sheffield Shield matches. I always remember we'd go out and win or lose a game and the next day back page lead, Vicks humiliate Queensland or Vicks get knocked over in Adelaide. And, you know, it was a lot bigger, the coverage I think it was uh, then. Much more coverage now with the uh, live streams and all those things. Uh, but Shield cricket then was a... It was a big thing. It really was. And there was big names, big personalities. There was always media surrounding our side because of those names. And, again, I'm very thankful that I played in that era from late 80s to mid-2000s with, I think, some of the greatest Victorian cricketers, some of the best Australian cricketers ever. Dean Jones, tell me about him. What was he like to play with? Wow, an interesting one and a tough one for me to answer. When I first came into the side, he was my roommate. We used to go away... On state trips and you had to share a room, stupid, with a grown man. You'd sleep two metres apart, two double beds. You got to know each other pretty quick, don't worry. And you didn't want to get Merv. Flem got Merv, bad luck. And I had Dino and he was really good to me. First three or four years, I've got to say, and he taught, he was the hardest trainer in Victoria. He got a bad rap at times, Dean Jones, because he had the perception of arrogance. Let's be brutally honest and I don't like to speak ill of the dead. But he got that, and I've learned in my later years working with him from his father, Barney Jones, who said, mate, you do whatever you have to do, crawl over broken glass to make it. And that's what he did. And he was brutal. He was brutal on young blokes. For some reason, he took a liking to me. And I was I was like his little under, you know, protege. He taught me a lot uh, and helped me with my batting. Uh, midway through my career, we had a fallout, you know, when I was dropped out of the side. Hindsight, I deserved to be dropped at the time. It caused a furor. Um, but Dean Jones was the hardest trainer. He was before his time. He would have been a wonderful T20 player. He was a great one-day player. Um, I would say probably, you know, if I had to rank my top three cricketers that I ever played with purely on cricketing ability, Dean Jones is right up there. Taught me a lot. We fell out. Um, and he wasn't great when he fell out with people. You know, he became very cold. And then uh, later in my journey, when I coached, I invited him to help me when I was coaching South Australia, help our young batters. He jumped on board. We rekindled our friendship. And I'm so glad we did because I spent time with him also in the Pakistan Super League. He was the coach and he took me as his assistant. So I spent a lot of time with him in the latter stages of his life, which was tragically cut short. So how, I was wanted to ask you, how important was it that you were able to patch things up for someone that was so yep. big in your career <laughs> Again, we're talking about a captain of Victoria, Dean Jones, a captain of Victoria, Darren Berry, that you were able to mend mend things before he unfortunately lost his life. I'm so glad I did because, as I said, I'd say the first five years of my career, he was wonderful to me. We probably had a five-year hiatus where we didn't talk. That was terrible. Um, And both were stubborn. We wouldn't give an inch. And then after our careers finished, uh, we reunited, and I'm so glad we did because... You know, when you think about it, a game of cricket, which meant so much to both of us, 
um, and my livelihood was taken away from me for a period. And at the time, I blamed him. And yeah, we don't need to go into it. There was political fallout over it, but we patched it up and we became great mates um, and shared a lot of time together in the Pakistan Super League, you know. And he was a very, very good coach. And he'd mellowed. He'd mellowed. A lot of people would say, oh, Dino, you know, mate, he was a great cricketer. And not many got to see the softer side of Dean Jones. I did, and I'm glad I did, and very sad that his life was cut tragically short. Do you think it, the way he was cost him from playing more for Australia? I've been asked this question a lot, and again, you know me, Whitey, I'm just honest. My answer is yes, and I, I hate saying that, but I think he agitated a few people uh, with the way that he was, but that's the way that he was. That's what made him great. He was relentless, ruthless, hard trainer, great player, but in a team environment, you know, and, and I challenged him, you know, on mid-20s, and who was I to challenge the great Dean Jones? He didn't like it. And I said, mate, you've you got to treat people better. And then, you know, 15 years later, we're having a glass of red wine in Dubai. He said, you were right, you little prick. You know, you were right. You better edit that out. But at the time, that was who he was, and he was a product of his environment. His father, Keith Stackpole, John Scholes, Carlton Cricket Club, hard. Mate, stand up or fall over. And that's what he became. So it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's a lot of people from my era growing up, he was the hero to so many of us as a Victorian cricket fan as opposed to Victorian cricket player. Yep. And we could never understand why he didn't play more cricket for Australia, why he was dropped when he was. And as the stories kind of emerge, it kind of makes a little bit more sense. But at the same point, it's a bit of a shame. To put an exclamation, I, I, when I speak at functions, the question most asked is why, what happened to Dean Jones? Why didn't he play? And there's so many stupid rumours out there. And, mm. You know, I think purely great player and at the time probably didn't fit into the team dynamic with everybody. Alan Border and him were close. They, You know, Border had a lot of respect. But... I would, I would say that was probably the reason, that you have to fit in to be part of the team. And sadly, I reckon he was cut 25 tests short. Mm, I agree. Merv Hughes? Great. Great mate, uh, great teammate. If I could pick one player to play for me life, Merv Hughes. He played for Footscray, Victoria and Australia with the same intensity. And we've only got 50 minutes here, Whitey. I could talk about Merv for 50 alone all I'll say is my favourite teammate, the most loyal bloke, and in post-career, you know, I played cricket with 85 players. I wrote them down yeah. when I knew I was coming in. 85 cricketers. Um, and when you retire, you find out who your real mates are. Of those 85, and some of them only played a couple of games, but the ones you played a lot of cricket with, Murph Hughes is at the top of the tree for me, unfortunately, and I don't want to get emotional. Shane Warne was my other one. Um and then a couple of other names that people wouldn't know, Simon Cook, who I played with for Victoria, and he went to New South Wales. We're still really great mates. Brad Hodge, you know, I go through a few, and you probably, you know, there's probably half a dozen. And in the last five or six years, I've started to catch up with a lot more people. Matty Elliott, who was a great player. There's another great player mm -hmm. I played with. We've caught up a little bit, and we're starting to reminisce about the good old days. Cricket Victoria, for a long time, were not good at this. They didn't bring the players together. Credit to the people involved now, the last three or four years. We've had invitations, reunions, past players have been set up. Things are heading in the right direction and it's brought a lot of people that I hadn't seen for years. Wayne Rowdy Phillips, beautiful, great bloke. 
caught up with him a lot recently as well as a result of those things. So I'll get to Shane shortly yep. and I hope you can get through it because I think it's important for you and important for Victorian cricket because no one knew Shane as well as you did in Victorian cricket. Um, but your coaches, you've mentioned a few already, yep. but from a Victorian setup, because David Hooks is the other thing we, we need to talk about, yep. but just an overall view of the coaches because, again, some of the biggest names in Victorian cricket touched you along the way and, and made you the person and, and player you became. Yeah. Well, before I made the team, the great Ian Redpath was in charge yeah. and I looked up to him and I'm so pr proud that Redders was recently inducted into the Hall of Fame. But he was actually, uh, he'd gone when I started. Les Stillman was the first coach of Victoria who'd also coached me in South Australia. He was pretty old school, hard-nosed bloke, Les Stillman. He would have done four or five years, I reckon. And him and Dean Jones were close partnership at the time. Um, after Les Stillman, John Scholes, who was, as I've said many a times, without doubt the biggest influence, not just on my cricketing career, Whitey, but I think on my life. When my father died when I was young, Barrel became almost like a second father. And you say about getting emotional for Shane, I, I still, I mean, Johnny Scholes had a heart attack and lost his life at, you know, 52 years of age. And I thought he was invincible. Great man, great Victorian, passionate. He was the biggest influence on my career as coach. Um, Mick O'Sullivan briefly when he filled in in that little gap and then David Hooks who was innovative and another one whose life was tragically cut short. Uh, I think David Hooks would have coached Australia. He would have been – he was ahead of his time. He was already doing the T20 stuff when he was coaching Victoria. And then my last coach who, when Hooks he was tragically killed uh, was Greg Shippard who's gone on to be – one of the great coaches of the modern era and uh, a great people manager, Greg Shippard. So I was lucky. When you go amazing, through those names, amazing Shippard, names. Hooks, O'Sullivan, Scholes, Stillman, some really good influences. How lucky was I? Let's talk about David Hooks. You get to play with him yep. as a young man and then he comes to Victoria. And I think we're all cheated with what we missed out on with David Hooks, yep. just, just his cricket mind. And I'd love you to talk to us about how he got to Victoria and then to elaborate a little bit about that mind of his. Yeah. Well, he'd come across, I think, with 3AW radio station to do that show. Yeah, he did. Jared Healy today. for yep. many years. And I know Graffy was instrumental. Shane Warne was a key figure. And I also remember, like, I was always the caretaker captain. I was behind Warne or Rifle or Jones or one of them was captain. And when they were away, I'd fill in as captain. You were the constant. I was... It wasn't until David Hooks became coach that I became the appointed captain. So I'm thankful for Hooksy for that because that was a great honour to be named the Victorian captain. But I was always the standby to all those superstars and we tried hard to get Hooksy. Now, if he was here, he would say this, he hated Victoria. South Australia versus Victoria. And I know when I coached South Australia, they hated Victoria. They told me to change my number plates when I went to Adelaide quickly <laughs> so I didn't get my car coined. So it was a struggle to get him uh, and we got him briefly and uh, I, I think a lot of people have said it already and he was big influence for Cameron White, um, David Hussey, John Moss, guys like that at the latter stages of my career that were great Victorian cricketers and we were cheated in the fact that we only had him briefly. Uh, innovative, great thinker of the game. I think John Scholes was my biggest influence but I reckon I learnt more about the tactics of the game and what to do and what not to do off Hooksy. Um, initially, he was my captain. I'm a kid in Adelaide. I was a bit wet behind the ears. 
And then when he made, he came to me, and I'll never forget it, he said these words to me and was, I'm proud. He said, you're the heart and soul of Victorian cricket and I want you to captain the side. That was the best thing anyone ever said to me because I love playing for Victoria. I, some would say I was too passionate, but playing for Victoria, I was invested in every ball. I loved it and I was proud to do it. And when he made me captain, I was proud. And he also had foresight because he said, there's a caveat to it. Cameron White is going to be the one-day captain and we're going to hand over. Didn't say how long, but that was the process. So what an innovative thinker. And Cameron White went on to become, I would say, arguably Victoria's best ever captain, Cameron White. Um, he was a kid, I was the old man, and that's how it worked out. So I had a year with David. We were robbed of a year because he was tragically killed in the January, but I can't speak highly enough of his influence on all of those players and he left a, a lasting legacy. You've mentioned a few things there around some of his characteristics, but what was the magic he had? Or is it an intangible? It's, it, it just feels like he he had magic. He did and he had an aura. He yeah. had a presence. When he walked in, people stopped and listened. Uh, he, he was actually, for a passionate bloke, who's fairly quietly spoken, but we did have uh, the wrath room and those players that are listening to this will remember and I reckon three or four times he shut the doors and tore the paints off the wall and told us exactly what he thought of us and not many coaches had done that. So generally quietly spoken, calm, three or four times and when he ripped us, we knew we needed to pull up our socks um, and become the David Hook's wrath room, cop the wrath of Hooksy. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, tragic that he lost his life in the manner in which he did. But that year, uh, which was my last year, I know we've jumped a bit there, but... Uh, Greg Shippard took over, wonderful man manager, and we were unbeaten that year. Not many people remember. Undefeated, Sheffield Shield, seven outright wins with the final, and we beat Queensland in the final. And that, for me, I was emotionally drained, physically gone, 34 years of age. And I know we've probably got a bit more to cover, but that was at the end of my career, and I knew it was time, one, for Cameron White to take over the captaincy, and, you know, coming hot on my heels was a young Adam Crossweight. Um, so my time was up and I'm glad that it was spent with David Hooks and Greg Shippard in my last year. The night he died, you were there. I was. I can't imagine what that would have been like for you. How was it for you? And then how could you then get back onto the field and play and continue as a team to play as well as you did? Because, it, I mean, it just... We think of Phil Walsh from a, an AFL perspective about a, a coach getting murdered and, and the impact that that had on the Adelaide Crows. Mm. But for what Victorian cricket was able to do post that was incredibly powerful. It was a horrible time. I still think back about it now clearly and I try to avoid driving down Beaconsfield Parade to the, past the hotel where the incident took place. Um, and it was just so unnecessary what happened, but it happened and... And I still remember, and uh, I shouldn't try not to get emotional, but um, when he was taken in the ambulance to the hospital, th things were not good. And there was quite a few of the boys around. And at the hospital, Darren Lehman was captain of South Australia, good mates, and uh, I was captain of Victoria. So they allowed the two of us um, with David's wife in to see David. And it was pretty clear when we got in there that things were not good. And uh, I still remember it today. Um, I still remember getting into the taxi at about six o'clock in the morning and, and the, the morning news, you were probably doing breakfast radio or something, 
said David Hooks fights for his life in the um, the Alfred Hospital. It's the Alfred, isn't it, down there? Um, and I knew that he wasn't fighting for his life because we'd been told that, unfortunately, due to what had happened uh, and the, the loss of oxygen to the brain, that it, he was being kept alive on the machines, basically, and they kept him alive because he was a donor. And then his family had to make the horrible decision to turn the machines off. This was in the middle of a cricket season. Boys were broken, me being one of them. But as captain, I had to try and be strong. I wasn't great at it, but I had to try and be strong. Uh, and we had to face press conferences. I still remember it at the old Cricket Victoria house. The, I said, if I do it, I want the whole squad there with me. And we all stood up and I had to read from a statement and answer some questions. It, there's no easy way to say it. was just a horrible time. And uh, we were robbed of a, of a great person, an innovator and a tragic event. We took a while before we got back on track uh, to, to play again, but we did. And as I said, very proud. We were undefeated. And uh, I remember holding the shield up, which I think it might have been the Pure Cup that year. It was always the shield to us. Uh, when I held the trophy up, I looked to the sky and I thought, this is bigger than a game of cricket. Our coach has been killed. We won the shield and I just knew that was my time to retire. So it was a pretty eventful year. Eventful because John Scholes had actually lost his life in July 2003. That really knocked me around. And I had to then captain Victoria. And then the bloke that made me captain was tragically killed in January. I don't know. I don't know. It was just a really horrible time in my life. And we won the Shield. I retired, started a family and I had a year off and then I went coaching. But it was horrible. It's extraordinary. Did, did you keep playing the way Hooksy would have wanted you to play? Because yep. you have to have a coach come in and look after things and Greg would have wanted to do it his way to a point. But how much of it was, no, we've got to keep this David Hooks legacy going at least for, the, for that season? It was a great combination, Hooks and Shippard, because Hooks was win at all costs, attack, outrageous, yeah. shippy, boring, <laughs> conservative, block. Don't give anyone an even break. I'm being hard on Shippy there, but it was yin and yang. Hooks and Shippard, I reckon they both learn a lot off each other. So we lost Hooksy, Shippy took over, and he did a great job. Went on, and he's still a great coach today. But they were very different. But, yeah, I think Shippy let us play with freedom and play in that manner. And even the Sheffield Shield final, Queensland won the toss and sent us in. Stupid move. Uh, we made 700. It started a bit of a rivalry between the two states. I got criticised as captain because we batted and batted and batted. They sent us in. I said, we'll bat. We'll bat. And we did. And we had 700. But I'm very proud. We bowled them out twice to win outright. So they got no comeback on it. Um, and that started a bit of rivalry, I think, between the two states over the next few years. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And riveting just to be here listening to you, Chuck, talk about this. Now, Shane, we've got to talk about Shane. Do we? I think we do because I think, as I said, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that would love your insights into an absolute genius. Mm. Um, how did the relationship start? Here, the Junction Oval, he drove in in a white Cortina that was probably worth 1500 bucks, and the sound system in his car was probably worth three and a half grand, pumping loud music, puff of cigarette coming out of the window, and out gets this little blonde bomber, not little, big, I thought it was Hulk Hogan, uh, big long blonde hair, fat, cigarette, music pumping, that's my first memory of him. 
We both played football at St Kilda in the under-19s. We both thought we were playing AFL footy. The truth be known, I was too fat and slow. Warnie was a good mark and a good kick, actually. He was a good player. Wasn't that good when the ball hit the ground. Didn't bend over too well. So we both were failed under-19 footballers. I was the year before him. He was the year after me in the under-19s. We both thought footy was the go. Passion. We then started together for Victoria. I started a little bit before him. He came in that year. We won the Shield that first year, 1990-1991. Warnie played a couple of games that year. Never got selected for the final. Paul Jackson was the spinner. Jacko. Uh, and Warnie almost went to New South Wales. The, the War Brothers tried very hard and Mark Taylor to lure him. And I remember, I got a lot of memories. I got a lot of memories. Uh, sitting with him at the Junction Oval saying, don't go, mate. Please don't go. Jeez, I'm glad we had that chat. Imagine if he'd have gone to New South Wales. And he was thinking about it. Uh, and at the time, spin wasn't a big thing in Victoria. It was more fast bowlers. We had a lot of fast bowlers. Uh, but thank heavens he stayed. And uh, that was the start of a friendship. You know, it, so probably from 17 or 18 years of age, we become mates. We were so similar but so opposite. It was bizarre. You know, I'd never smoked a cigarette in my life. Um, sadly, he smoked plenty. Um he loved gambling and going to the casino. I hated gambling. But outside of that, love St Kilda Footy Club, passion for sport, love of the game. You know, we were, I would say, early days inseparable as Victorian teammates. He then went on to become the greatest and played at the highest. I just stayed as a state cricketer. But he never, ever forgot me or my family or my kids' birthdays and... As I said, Merv and Warney were probably the two throughout my career, the constants, and then post-career that I'd stayed in touch with. Um, and I just still can't believe, to be honest, that, that a year has passed. You know, I'll never forget it when I got the phone call in the early hours of the morning because I'd been with Shane at the MCG two days or maybe four days before he went to Thailand. He was commentating on television and I was on the radio and we sat in his car in the MCG car park for about an hour uh, in the non-smoking MCG and Shane had about six. And I said, stop smoking, mate. I can't breathe. And we chatted about so many things. We were going to London together. He was coaching the London Spirit and I was his assistant. He was so loyal to me, so loyal to the point of, I think, probably, I mean, Adam Gilchrist was a great player, you know, a great Australian wicketkeeper batsman. And I... At the time when he got the job, Warney thought I should have got it. And he and he shouted it from the rooftops. And he told Gilly, mate, you can't lace Chuck's boots, you know. And he stuck up for me. It probably became too obsessive, but I'm internally grateful for that, eternally grateful that his loyalty, that's what he was, to his mates, to his close mates. It took a while to get – he treated everyone with respect. Had great manners, Shane Warne, great manners. Um and if you become on his inner sanctum, and I was lucky enough to be there throughout his life, and and we were great mates, and it still it still burns. I still, you know, I've got a screenshot on my phone of he and I, and I so I look at him every day, and I'm waiting for the text message when St Kilda play. I'm waiting for the message. Are we winning? Doesn't matter where he was. He'd be commentating in South Africa. What's the score, Chuck? Who's kicked goals? How's Hamill going? You know. So the passion for St Kilda. You know. Now I go to the footy. Uh, and there's just there's something missing, and there'll always be something missing, and it's just it's just a tragedy that he you know at such a young age that he that he's gone. You talked about him being the greatest. You had the best seat in the house. Mm, I was lucky. 
when did you know that, hang on, this guy's a bit special? Down here at training at the Junction Over when he first started, very thick fingers, strong forearms. He spun the ball like nothing I'd ever seen before. And people have said it before, but you're right. Um, sorry, when he let it go, you could hear it fizzing. You could actually hear the ball, zzz, you know. I'd not seen that before and I'd kept to a lot of good spinners. Uh, he didn't have the control when he first started and once he got serious and Terry Jenner got hold of him and he lost weight and, you know, when, when he became the real Shane Warne, leg spin is the hardest craft in the game to bowl and he did it better than anyone's ever done it and the control that he had was unbelievable but the mastery and the trickery and the bluff and the bravado, you'll never see anything like it again. Uh, didn't have a good wrong Never had a good wrong He never had a good wrong He had a good flipper for about three years before his shoulder was done. His genius was in the art of leg spin. He would spin one ball that far and the next ball looked exactly the same and it spun that far. So trying to play that, I don't think he was hard to read. Some would argue that. He wasn't hard to read but he was so hard to play because unless you could get him on the full and he bowled at that pace that you could rarely get him on the full, he bamboozled the world. His flipper for three years terrorised people, but his leg spinner was something of, of true brilliance and beauty. And I, So what's that like to keep to? Because it's one thing to bat to it. Yep. To keep to it when you've got a batter right in front of you yep. and you're trying to read what he's doing out of the hand or what it's going to do off the pitch, what the batsman's going to do. I mean, I would imagine that's really quite difficult. Be ready. It was the greatest challenge of my career, but the greatest highlight. Whenever he played for Victoria, I was his keeper. Although there was that period when I lost my spot, and um, I think Roachie played a couple. Adam Gilchrist, uh, Adam Gilchrist, Adam Crossway, to beg your pardon, played a couple alongside him, and, and they would both say how lucky they were. But you know, I probably played thirty games for Victoria with him, and maybe a dozen one-day games. Uh, whenever he was here, I always made sure I kept to him in the nets. So I'd get in behind him and make sure. As again, I'm not being an idiot. I don't think he was hard to read. I don't think the hard part was how much was it going to spin. So you had to have your gloves ready. But the good thing, when when he bowled, I felt like I was going to get a dismissal every ball. I thought this bloke's going to run down and get stumped or there's going to be an outside edge. So, you know, I look back now as a 53-year-old where my great mate's no longer with us and think my career coincided with the greatest leg spinner that's ever been. Um, I was privileged to keep to him and then even more privileged to call him a great mate. So when he burst onto the scene or came onto the scene, was there any, not reluctance, but was there any cynicism around who is this bloke, seriously, the way you explained yep. it and the way he was sort of pushed through or was there everyone's going, nah, when, when this guy gets it right, we'll look out. The raw spin was there but the control wasn't. And he would say, if he was sitting alongside me today, that he got picked for Australia before he was ready. No doubt. But they were looking for something and he had charisma. You know, his first test was horrible. One for 151 at the SCG. Ravi Shastri caught Jones, bowled Warren. You know, he was drinking cans in the bull ring at the MCG and eating pies with his brother. Mate, you're playing for Australia. What? He wasn't ready. But then Ian Chappell and uh, Terry Jenner pulled him in and said, hey, you got something special. Do you want to be special or do you want to be an idiot? And he pulled his head in, lost weight. And and from there, you know, in that period, early 90s, wow, I mean, it was just unbelievable. to watch, You know, I'd watch him play for Australia and think, you know, I'm, I'm keeping him for Victoria next week. Um, he was just brilliant. He was just absolutely brilliant. 
You, you touched on Shane trying to get you to play for Australia, and I think as a pure gloveman, you should have played for Australia. That's my Thanks, opinion. Warden. Does it burn that you didn't? You got put onto the Ashes squad sort of halfway through as a mm. as a the backup keeper, just purely on glove work versus you know the contribution with the bat. You're in a tough period where you've got Ian Healy followed by Adam Gilchrist. I mean, it doesn't get any harder than that. But how do you feel about not playing for Australia? I would have cut off my left arm to play one test match because that's the kid that started in the paddock at Dufton, looking at Rod Marsh, I wanted to play for Australia. And when I was playing for Victoria, I wanted to play for Australia. And it, I wouldn't say it burns because I look back now with maturity and go, you know what, I think Ian Healy in my lifetime, was the best wicketkeeper Australia's had in my lifetime. I read a lot of books when I was a kid, Don Talon, Wally Grout, all the greats, but I didn't see them. Ian Healy was a great keeper and kept beautifully to Shane Warne. Um, then after that arrives Adam Gilchrist, and that was my time, all right, and that was when Warney said, that's Chuck's spot. Gilchrist, when he first started, wasn't great with the gloves, honestly, but he was always a special bat. And he worked at his craft with the gloves and I think became a great wicketkeeper batsman and will probably be remembered as the greatest. I think Healy was a better pure keeper. I think Gilchrist was a fantastic gloveman and an unbelievable batsman. So they were the two in my time. There was only one test match, Whitey, if I can just briefly touch mm. on it. And again, it involved Shane. They were in Pakistan. Ian Healy broke his thumb and they had to call someone up. This was before Gilchrist. I can't tell you exactly what year. You might be able to tell me. Healy's the keeper, entrenched, and who was second? Five of us were fighting for the spot. It's mid-90s, I reckon. Yep. 94, 95. I get a text from Shane. You're in. I'm thinking my dream's fulfilled. I'm in. Healy's broken his thumb. Get ready. You're coming to Pakistan. I didn't care where. I, I would have gone to the moon. I didn't know. Never been to Pakistan. And I'm thinking I'm in. I'll never forget it. I watched the news that night. Ian Healy's broken his thumb in Pakistan and uh, replacement will be Phil Emery from New South Wales. That burnt. That was the only time that I felt robbed of a spot. And Phil Emery was a great state cricketer as well. The New South Wales Mafia, Mark Taylor, Steve Bernard might have been the team manager, the War Brothers. They had a good presence, the New South Welshman. I reckon that was as close as I probably got. And Warney said I thought I was in. So when he said I was in, I thought I'm in. As it turned out, that one opportunity went to uh, Phil Emery. So he's got um, – I've got a green baggie from the Ashes Tour, but mine doesn't have a number. Uh, Phil Emery, that's the only one. So I, I couldn't compete with Healy. I started for Victoria when he started for Australia, champion. And then I thought my time, they went to Gilcrest. Bit of controversy at the time. Uh, what a great decision that was. That was the right decision. So what do you do? You know, I was just maybe always number two. People criticise my batting and I underachieved with the bat for Victoria. But I'm pr I made four first-class hundreds and I'm proud of that um, because I was, a, I was a steady bat. I would say I underachieved for Victoria. You know, only average low 20s. Not good enough. That's the reality. Not good enough. Probably averaged high 30s in, in grade cricket, you know, but I didn't make enough runs for Victoria and, th and that's something I look back on. If I had my time again, I probably would have made – be more selfish with the bat. I've always played for the team and if there was runs to be had at the end, I'd have a slog. But I didn't make enough runs. Proud of my um, work with the, the gloves and you know, a lot of good people. It's for other people to judge, but I'm proud of the career that I had and I'm proud to be a v Victorian cricketer for 15 years and captain the state to a shield win. So I'm happy with my lot. 
Only a couple more questions, and you've just answered one of them about regrets, whether you had any. But being a weed keeper and being there's only one of you, and we sort of touched on this at the start of the conversation about how difficult that must be, you know, looking over your shoulder, the, the next young kid coming through. For you to be able to do it for as long as you did is an incredible achievement in itself. But that that time when Peter Roach got in and you couldn't get back in, did you have to change anything or did you just back yourself in that your skills and what you had done on your CV yep. was going to be enough to get you back? Was there any learnings out of that experience? I I think at the time I got the kick because I wasn't making enough runs. Um, ironically, the year that I got dropped, I'd started the season well. I can't remember the stats exactly, but I'd got a 70 somewhere. But the facts were that I was not making enough runs and that was the reason given for my omission. Um, I think there was – well, I don't think I know there was a lot of politics involved as well. There was a meeting here at Victoria and a few players, Warren Ayres was one of them, myself, Craig Howard, we spoke up against Dean Jones and those three got dropped for the next game. It was political. Fact, but also it was also a fact that I wasn't making enough runs. So Roachy got the ch- and to his credit, when he came in, he did well. And he was a very good competitive cricketer, Peter Roach, no doubt, keeper, batsman. Um, and I thought then that I might never get back. I really did. I haven't told many people this. Uh, Andy Flower from Zimbabwe contacted me and inquired as to whether I would want to move to Zimbabwe. And he said to me, "It's two years to qualify, um, but." and I wrote it in my book when I retired, I almost went to Zimbabwe to play because I thought I can play test cricket. The end of the day, two reasons. No, that didn't feel right. I'm going to fight for my spot to get it back. And two, the qualification was actually four years, not two. And I was 26, I think, when I got dropped. So I went back to club cricket and I had to make runs, which I did. I made 100 at Northcote. Uh, It was in a period where I transitioned from Fitzroy Doncaster to Northcote in my club team. I had nine years at Fitzroy and eight at Northcote in my club uh, premier cricket career. Um, but it was a difficult time, but I vowed that I wasn't going to give up easy. And luck had it. The end of the year, Dean Jones and Les Stillman out. In, John Scholes, coach of Victoria, Shane Warne, captain. I reckon that helped me a little bit. I got back into the side and thank goodness, from memory, I think I got 148 in my first game back. I should have known that, but it was I think it was my first game back and and I was a much better player in the second half of my career than I was in the first. So it was a kick in the guts that I needed. Um, your question was about wicket-keeping. You know, Peter Roach was good. There was a guy at Melbourne called Brad Glenn who I thought was yeah. very good, a Mornington Peninsula boy. Uh, and then Crossy at the end of my career. There's always people looking to take your spot. I think you know me pretty well. I wasn't going to give it up no. too easily. And... Uh, I was glad that I got that opportunity to come back. Two more. Have you got a favourite dismissal? Because we we get on YouTube a lot and I know I do, that, do it with my mates all the time and some of the leg side stumpings in, in one day games particularly or standing up to Paul Rifle as you, as you did and mm. some pretty – I mean you talked about, you know, where you got that skill from, from way back. But was is there anything that stands out to you? Not really been asked that before. I think the one that's most talked about is probably and shown is that rifle one because it was David Boone batting. Um, a good mate, Jamie Cox, was at the non-striker's end. Paul Rifle wasn't happy that I was up to the stumps, but I said to him, because David Boone, like a lot of batsmen do, fall over when they leg glance, was right on lunch and I said, give me a shot. Pistol wasn't happy. 
you know the story. I got him down the leg side, right on lunch. Booney was disgusted. I've got a big blown... I haven't got a lot, but I've got a big blown-up photo of that at home of me jumping up and poor rifle grabbing me. To this day, Pistol hates that he's got one dismissal stumped. <laughs> stumped every bold rifle. That's the one that's most talked about. I don't know. There was... There was a few. I remember a leg side catch off Mickey Lewis. Graham Rummins was batting for New South Wales. A big leg side one at the SCG. I, I remember that one. Um, I love. He's sorry to cut you off, but is that is the leg side stumbling to a medium pacer? Is that the is that the cherry on top of the cake for a, a, a weird keeper dismissal? Is that or is that a a cut shot to a spinner up to the stumps? Is there one that sort of stands out? Leg side stumping. Yeah, definitely. And and you know from Dufton, I used to do it. I stood up to the stumps a lot to Ian Harvey. Yes, We both yes. grew up together from, yep. in Wonthaggy. I'm a couple of years older than Harv, but we had a great synergy and he had a great Yorker. And I don't know, but I reckon I would say I got most of my leg side stumpings off Ian Harvey. A couple off Jason Backer, yeah. Chewy, who thought he was quick, but he was just <laughs> slow medium. <laughs> um, but it was something that was an instinct in me and I just had that. But uh, leg side stumping is the greatest thrill for so. Probably that Boone uh, off rifle was one that's talked about most of all. Um, yeah, I don't know. You, you've coached – we're not going to get into the coaching today because it's more about you as a player because you coached all around the world. But do you look – when you watch Victoria play now – we're not going to talk about the fact you're at the Hurricanes at the moment. Um, do you still see yourself as a Victorian and how much pride do you get out of watching Victoria play now? Does the – the juices still flow when you see them in action? Yes, I do. I always have. I coached South Australia and I loved it. It was a great opportunity. Playing against Victoria was hard. And I put on a bravado and I sledged Glenn Maxwell and told him he was no good. But the truth is, you know, my heart's got a big V on it. When you play for 15 years and you grow up here and, you know, those guys, when I was a kid looking up to, to Wiener and Moss and Yallop and Skulls and Bright and all that, those guys, I, I just thought watching the ABC, how good would it be to do that? And then to do it for 15 years, Victoria is in my blood. I've been lucky, and we're not here to talk about coaching. I've had some great opportunities all around the world. Pakistan Super League, IPL champions with Shane Warne. Yep, I'm involved with the Hobart Hurricanes. Ricky Ponting gave me an opportunity, assistant coach. Um, you know, if there's one, you say, I didn't play for Australia. I'm probably getting a bit old now. But if there's one thing that I would like to do when the time was right, would be to coach Victoria. And I say that unashamedly because it's probably the only thing that I would say, you know, I didn't play a test match. Um, you know, and Chris Rogers done a great job and he might do it for another 10 years and my time might never come. I've watched this Shield final just now. I'm terribly excited. Mitch Perry, uh, Campbell Calloway, some great young kids coming through and Will Sutherland has arrived in my eyes. He has really arrived and, you know, I've only mentioned three there. It's harsh. There's, there's a few. So... The way we stormed into the final, we, uh, I called for Fox Sports over the weekend and I referred to it as we. So, yeah, Victoria's in my blood, always has been, always will be, but sometimes opportunities come and you have to go elsewhere to pursue them and, and that's what I've done. So, hopefully one day I'll come home, but I always check the Victorian scores. It's been so amazing that you've come in today and had a chat to us. Uh, it's been one that we've... Everyone that's come in has been great, but to have you come in and, and finish our series, we've been trying to make it happen all year. You've got such an amazing story and the way you tell it, it's uh, you can just tell how passionate you are about Victorian cricket. 
thank you for coming in. And I'm not going to say congratulations on your career because that goes without saying, but to, to share what you have today with uh, all Victorian cricket fans, I think is pretty special. Thank you very much. Thanks, Wiley. I've enjoyed having the chat. Darren Berry joining us on the Vic State Cricket Podcast. As I said, that's the last of the series. I hope you've enjoyed them all and hopefully we'll be back doing it all again next cricket season.